Hey, you know what my first thought was when I woke up this morning? You are neither hot nor cold, Missouri, and I shall cast you out of my mouth. <laughs> That's my first thought. 6.45 when my oldest came in and he said, it's snowing. And I said, you liar. <laughs> what in the world is going on? It's, you know, I was standing right over here just a few seconds ago. The sun is hot. It's going to be 55 degrees when we leave here. Anyway, I'm done whining. It's about time. <laughs> Let's pray. <laughs> Goodness gracious. Y'all know me too well. Is that my wife? <laughs> I'm just kidding, Nancy. I love you. <laughs> Hey, we're going to finish the series, uh, Kingsway Values, today. Excited for that. Oh, do I need to turn this thing on? Probably. Oh, man, now you're going to test my powers. Oh, I did it! <laughs> First chance. We're going to finish Kingsway Values today. Uh, I'm excited because uh, this has kind of uh, been a series that I hope, if you've been here from the beginning, it has just brought some clarity to what we're all about. Um, you know, we are not just about one hour every week that we just come in here, sing some songs, hear some uh, new information, and kind of move out feeling better about our lives. Uh, though most of us sometimes enjoy that part, uh, there's something that needs to unite us in a deeper way. And so we just started by saying, hey, we have this statement, this gospel mission that you might hear us say all the time. We are inviting everyone into full life, every single person in full life that was found in Jesus. That's amazing. That's awesome. But that's kind of like grand scale. You know, that's kind of like you're just saying, like, I'm trying to be you know, a good Christian. That's awesome. Jesus called us to that. But the nitty-gritty of daily decisions are so much more grayscale than they are black and white sometimes. So it's hard to know what direction we're supposed to know. It's hard to know, like, what are our gifts? What is our calling? What are we supposed to step into? And so over the course of the last four weeks, we've kind of defined that. We've kind of said, hey, this is, this is our focus. This is our our, our kind of guiding direction. And so we've just used these two statements to kind of remind, I just want to remind you just in case, you know, these are the two things that values do. The first is this, you have values, uh, the importance of them, what you have values whether you choose them or not, all right? Uh, so our identity as a church will be what we choose to value, that's our values, all right? And that's whether we choose it or not. So, we're, so as we're moving forward, as we're trying to figure out what full life looks like, as we're calling others, inviting others into it, we need to remind ourselves that our values are going to set that. That's going to be something that is going to call those people in, invite people in, and define what full life looks like. So today, we've traveled a long distance, and don't worry, about, at the end of this, you're actually going to get to review all six values, all right? I know you've been waiting to see all six at one time. There they are. But today, we're finishing, and we're going into our last value, and I have to say, this is one of my favorite values. This is one of my personal favorites, and here it is right here. We will be known by what we are for, not by what we are against. Love is at the core of everything we do. I'm going to read that one more time. We will be known by what we are for, not by what we are against. Love is at the core of everything we do. Now, when I first read this, and maybe you have a reaction like I do, uh, 
That sounds awesome, right? Like, oh, amazing. Like, we know we're for super optimistic and positive. There's going to be no negative. We're not against anything, right? And then love is going to be at the core of everything we do. And I'm not trying to break this down. I'm just trying to get you, like, that's the emotional response I have, all right? I'm like, this is super fun. Everybody get in a prayer circle, and let's just talk about how good and awesome life is going to be, and love is at the core of everything. And that's awesome until McDonald's gets my order wrong or my kids talk back to me or it's 6.45 and there's snow on the ground and I'm like, love is not at the core of anything that I do this morning. And I'm telling you, when you interact with the people at your job or you and your wife have a disagreement or someone rips you off or someone does something that's destructive to the people closest to them and then continues to do it and doesn't stop, I mean, it starts to become a little bit more complicated. So when I read this and I say this, I hope that you see that it is at its core absolutely a positive, amazing call to love. But I know that this value is something that each of us are going to have to define it and kind of unpack it in a way that it interacts with your life. You can't just leave this on the screen and expected to do what it's called to do. This is a direction setter. This is a defining thing about who we are. You can't leave this here and have it do its work. We have to work through it. So I've been pouring over, I mean, just ways that I can unpack this, figure this out, and I, I had a couple on how this is. But this last week, uh, I, I had someone bring up John chapter 9. And it blew my socks off to how it relates to what we're talking about today. It has been a story that since I've heard it and since I've been thinking about it, this set of scriptures has just, I mean, it just blew my mind to how this is. So let me set the backstory up here, okay? Jesus, uh, in John chapter 9, I'm actually going to turn there in a real Bible. Oh my gosh, don't freak out, all right? Here we go. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 9 uh, he's interacting with a bunch of different people. And John's, John's gospel is one of those beautiful books because John's gospel, he tells you the point of it in like the first four verses. He basically says this, I'm giving account and, and keeping track of all the signs that you will come to, to believe, is what John says, that you would come to believe. So everything that you read in John's gospel, he's putting in here intentionally so that you would read it and understand that it's not just recording what he saw, and he's not just talking about what really happened, though those are true things, but he's putting it in a way that you can see it so that you have a chance to believe. I think that's really, really, really important. So in John chapter 9, we, we interact with, uh, Jesus is interacting with this guy at, who's blind from birth. And it's one of those fun stories because there's a lot of things that Jesus does that are miraculous and signs and cool, but this has got one of those things in it that you're like, wait, what? You're Jesus, why would you do that? He interacts with this guy and he says, do you want to be healed? And he says, yes, I want to be healed. So he spits on some mud, makes his own essential oil, all right? Yeah, it's a jab, I'm sorry. And then he places it on his eyes, all right? And then he says, go to this pool and wash. And this special pool is right outside the city of Jerusalem. It had, you know, some known things to be. It was probably just a hot springs, but go there and wash. It's not about the water. It's not even about where it's at. It's about obedience to believe. It's about a trust and faith in this man's heart, I believe, is what Jesus is doing. So this guy goes, 
and he washes the stuff, which I don't know if he actually heard Jesus spit or if he just thought it was wet liquid. We won't tell him. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe it was some mud. <laughs> but he washes it off and he can see. He can see again. Now, I don't have time to tell you about what this would take. This is not just an eyesight thing. The fact that this man can see is baffling, let alone that he can stand or walk while having his eyes open. I have a father who loves to learn obscure and crazy things, and he drug me into it with his, in my childhood. I have to admit it to you. Which means between the ages of 14 and 18, we listen to all kinds of biographies and autobiographies on all kinds of crazy things. And one of them was, believe it or not, the first cornea transplant. All right? It was the first time that someone's back part of the eye that reflects and actually holds the image and then reflects and turns that into a brainwave that your brain, that's a super simplified thing, that turns it into a brainwave that your body can actually understand and interpret. It's switched out. Now, the crazy thing is, the guy that they did it to had been blind since he was seven, but then at 34, when he got it, he couldn't walk with his eyes open. The neural pathways that had been decided in his brain, he had no equilibrium nerves. There was no synapses there firing. So he opened his eyes, and guess what it did? The world spun. It's very disappointing. And I think the crazy thing about it is, he never learned how to do it properly. If you threw something at him, like a ball, he could catch it in a totally crazy, non-intentional way. Rapid fire, he could just react. But if you asked him to open his eyes and to catch a ball that you threw at him, he had no depth perception in the rest of his life with double eye patches. And his brain never really learned or reinterpreted and got past a certain point. Super sad. Okay? In my mind, I'm going, that's crazy, he can see. But it's also crazy because he's going to walk. He's going to look at people and recognize their faces. He's going to talk to people. And he's going to do it all while having his eyes open. That's mind-boggling. So, this is a big deal. But there's even something larger going on. Something bigger that's in the background. In verse 11, we see the man talking to this group of Pharisees. Now, the reason why he's talking to this group of Pharisees is because Jesus pulled this, this miracle off inside the temple of Jerusalem. And it happens to be on a certain day that Chick-fil-A wouldn't be open. All right? That's on the Sabbath. Now, technically, the Sabbath, Jewish, is, is Saturday. All right? So let's just not get crazy here. But it's the day of rest. And there's certain rules that have been put in place that aren't necessarily from Levitical code and sense of God's law, but in place of those, they would actually, man-made laws would be set in place to keep you from even getting close to those. So this is the thought process when you had the boiling pot of water on the stove and you didn't want your child to touch the boiling water, you would draw the line on the tiles in front of the, the oven, right? There's two tiles in front of the oven. You cannot cross the... Because if you cross this tile, 
you will touch that stove, right? So the intent of these was to keep you from breaking or, or being punished for breaking one of the laws of the Sabbath. And do you know what two things have been set up that are not the actual breaking of the Sabbath, but are lines drawn? Lines drawn by man. Here's the two. You ready? These are just the two that Jesus broke. No medical things on Sundays, on Sabbaths. You can't treat anything on Sundays, on the Sabbath. And you cannot mead, which means you cannot take flour and water and a little bit of yeast and actually make something. You can't mead. So guess what they said? Jesus spit on mud and meaded. This is what they're going, so what did he actually do? And this is what he says. The man's response is they're questioning him. Mud, see, I told you he didn't know it was spit. Put it on my eyes and told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Now, there's even a thought that Jesus told him to break even another law, which was to not travel a certain part of distance, and that they had toned that down. And so the walk that he actually made him walk would have been a third. But we're a little shady on how far exactly it had been, so it might not be true. But there's even a chance that could have been a third thing. So then this debate starts. And I have to tell you, the debate is off how the story starts. See, Jesus didn't just stumble into this man that was blind. He stumbled into him because there was a question that was asked. There was a question that was asked by Jesus' disciples at the very beginning of this story. The disciples came to Jesus, and they saw this man that was blind from birth, and they said, who sinned? His parents or him? Because they equated a physical brokenness with a spiritual dysfunction. And so they're saying, who who broke the rules to cause this? And Jesus' response is a little bit painful. Because this is what Jesus says, God could be glorified. Which always makes me a little nervous because I'm like, what does that mean? But in the end, what it really means is this, that all pain will magnify the glory of God in this planet. God never wastes pain when faithfulness and obedience is connected. So in that moment, Jesus goes up to him, and then the rest of the story plays out like we just did. But why this is so curious is then the Pharisees and Sadducees don't know what to do because if physical things can happen out of an act of disobedience, that's breaking down their whole worldview. You get this? Wait, I thought he was blind because someone was disobedient, but but Jesus is breaking these rules and now someone's being healed. So they're fracturing their brains. He's starting to tear down their God box. And it's doing a wrecking job. So much so that the Pharisees and Sadducees are looking at a man that is seeing for the first time in his life, and they're like, I don't believe it. 
I don't believe it. Get this man's parents. It's the only way we're going to... Doesn't it just feel like it could have been read from today's... <laughs> right? Just today. No, 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 trust the kid. Get, him, get the parents in here. But I love... Check this out, parents. I love the parents' response. We know he is our son. We are not idiots. <laughs> the parents answered... We know he was born blind. You think we would have noticed. All right? But now he can see. He can see now. Who opened his eyes? We don't know. We weren't there. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. You know why they responded that way? They were scared. They were scared the Pharisees and Sadducees were going to respond in a way that they were going to basically eliminate their family from the community. Their son had broken some rules. He'd been a part of this whole thing, and they're going, hey, 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 hey. We don't know details. I don't want to get him in trouble. I don't know what, exactly what happened. You need to talk to him. I wonder how many things in your life these days. Just wonder how many things in my own life. I'm drawing a line in the sand in front of the things that God has really called me to do that. Maybe there's something that makes me uncomfortable over here and let it be over there. I wonder how many times a conversation or a certain way to interact with a type of sin or a person's struggle that I would draw a line and keep myself away. Call it, call it for safety, call it for holiness but in the end, it's for my own comfort. The Sadducees bring the man back in and they're interacting with him and they're just getting mad, guys. Because they're messing with what they think they had figured out. They're messing with what they think they knew or they thought they had figured out and done Jesus has just come in and just flipped it. And so after a while, they just they look at the man again and they say, tell us again what happened. And he tells them, and then he goes, why are you even asking? And they finally goes, okay, do you think, I know you're healed and everything, but do, do you think he's a sinner? This Jesus guy. And in that moment, that word that we, that word that we would attach so many negative things to, that our guilt and brokenness would be attached to that, and that it would, it would cause shame in some of us that have grown up in the Christian church, that, that we are sinners, oh, so broken. But it had been a label that had been placed on this man since birth. It had been placed on this man since birth. He had never even been given a chance it was assumed 
Look at his eyes. He's broken. And now these men are asking to the person who made him whole, who stopped and helped, who actually showed him love. They're asking, hey, is that guy a sinner? He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, I was blind, and now I can see. Let me ask you, who was against things in this story and who was for somebody in this story? Who was against things and who was for things? It's a delicate balance, isn't it? The last thing I want to do is be a church. The last thing I want to do is be a church that is defined by what I'm against. The Pharisees are not all horrible people, you guys. They did incredible things. They, they upheld and did amazing things. But in the Bible, Jesus is so frustrated with them over and over and over again because they keep being against things and he keeps going, what are you even for? What are you for? What's the point of all this? They're missing it. We are against sin, but for people. Love is the first priority. We are absolutely against sin. You know why I'm against sin? Because sin breaks people, and it hurts the people closest to them. Myself included. Your sin and my sin does not stay in our own lives. I wish it did, but it ekes out. It breaks us. It fractures our very soul, and it is detrimental to the point of death. But there's a reason why we're against sin. It's because we're for people. We're for God's people who is everyone. Ephesians 2, while we were still dead and sinners, Christ died for us. Philippians 2, though he is the humble version, humbled himself below a servant so that he would die a death, even a death on a cross. Why? For you and for me. Not because he hated sin, but he hated what sin was doing to you and to me. We're against sin, but we are for people. And love is the priority. It's so fitting this week. Look, we had two snow, snow weeks. We, this was not supposed to be the intention. But then I read Palm Sunday is this week. 
And if you don't know what that is, that this is the week before Jesus' death. Easter's coming, but he's riding in in John chapter 12, and the people are putting palm branches on the ground, and they are welcoming him like a triumphant military king, and they're saying he's here. In fact, they have a couple verses. This is what the people, the next day, the great crowd that had watched Lazarus be raised from the dead, the very same crowd is watching, and they said, look, they'd heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. They took palm branches, and they went to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed him who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Oh, so amazing, right? But then we have this little verse, just a couple verses later. John, I love that he records this. At first, the disciples did not understand all this, only after Jesus was glorified, which means when he came back from the dead, him that these things had been done to him. He was not coming in to conquer sin. He was coming in to lay down his life for you and me. He was not just against Sin, he was for you and me to the point of death. And they didn't get it. They didn't get it. I wonder how many things in our life we have placed behind. I wonder how many people, groups, issues, struggles that we have said, hmm, And we claim it's because sin is bad, but in the end, we're just calling those people unwanted, unvalued, not the chosen. Leave them alone. And the worst part is, we do it in God's name. And you want to know what breaks my heart? is watching a God that gave everything in love. That his love is tarnished by our actions. That we as people would not reflect what we've been given fully, but would draw a safety net around ourselves. That we would pretend that love has some sort of a limit in someone else's life, but no limit in mine. That you and I would say, no, 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 that's just weird and uncomfortable, so that has to be wrong. I don't get it. And we would never let ourselves learn, grow. Last time I checked, I don't have the same perspective on life that I did when I was 5 or 10 or 15 or 20. How about you leave a little room in your perspective for growth? And leave a little bit more loom for love. Because love is at the core of everything we're going to do. I'd rather get it wrong with a little bit extra love. And then learn that there's some things we need to cut out than to start pointing fingers and getting angry. I would rather grace be the thing that that describes us and love be the thing that describes us because that's the words that John used. God is love. If we could get it, oh, you want to know what that does? 
blind people see. Blind people come to see. Full life is found. That's what happens. When we blow past lines in the sand and we extend at a cost love. That's one of our values. We're going to do it. I say sounds good too much, but I'm going to say it one more time. Sound good? That's why it's my favorite. So here's our six values. I'll walk through them. We invest our time and abilities in the next generation. We will always choose to prioritize the next generation. It is today's leaders as much as it is tomorrow's. We go to the next one. I'm not going to read all these because it'll take too long, but you'll get it, and you'll have it on online right now. You have it in a handout if you want it. Community. We utilize and prioritize relationships. It's the only way for sustainable growth. You need accountability. You need people in your life. You do. We embrace change. Experimentation. We will experiment. And it will sometimes cost what you prefer. It absolutely will. The message is timeless, but the method is not. We are contributors. If, if I could highlight one that we need to work on as a church, look, we are contributors. This church does not exist for us. We exist for the world because we're the church. We are the church. We should not be inwardly focused on comfort. We should be externally looking to call others in. Contributing, bless to bless. We keep it simple, don't we? We don't have to do everything fancy and crazy. We're not a disco ball. We are a solid, sustaining, life-giving light. We will be known what we are for, not what we are against. Because love is at the core of everything you do. Look, we will invest in the next generation. We will absolutely prioritize relationships. We will. We'll, we will experience experimentation together. <laughs> but we'll keep it simple. We, and we will contribute because each of us has a calling to be blessed to bless and we recognize that the world is waiting for us to be fully unleashed. And we will do it with love at the core. So that's what Kingsway is about. Inviting everyone into full life is only found in Jesus. One person at a time. And maybe it may just start with Easter. You know the full picture now. You know what you're inviting people to. Maybe you know somebody in your life that just needs a simple invitation. No gimmicks, no gags. You're aware of what's, what you're calling them to, what you're inviting them to. Not perfection. Pursuit. Other one who is. Let's pray.